So today we have the third in our panel series on MICA, markets and crypto assets. Today we cover CASPs or crypto asset service providers. Now, there are many conceptual appeals to MICA for US crypto natives. One is this notion of a common framework for licensing crypto asset services providers. Now in the US, these could be uh, classified as money transmitters or of convertible virtual currencies. Um, where if you are either receiving or processing CVCs, convertible virtual currencies, you need to evaluate licensing requirements across every state where you intend to do business in. It's an expensive and time-consuming endeavor. At the end of it, you have to worry about bit license because that's the hardest one to get. In addition, there are a series of open questions, which are not unlike what you would have in Europe as to whether or not you have to be a alternative trading system, a licensed custodian, a trust, a broker dealer, a futures commission merchant, or a number of other designation. The difference is, of course, is that this sort of gives you clarity that the business that you're operating with isn't going to suddenly be upended by a new interpretation. Like there is a recognition that you are, that there is a framework within which to operate in as a crypto asset services provider. We don't have this in the US, we really don't. Uh, even if you go and you get your MTLs across multiple jurisdictions, some states are still figuring out what they wanna do on CVCs, other states are constantly reevaluating. There's no such thing as a regulation that stays static, but nonetheless, to get a framework that gives you clarity across multiple jurisdictions within the EU, that's something we just don't have. Um, so, Joining us today, we have this, the same or similar panelists as we've had on the first and second uh, podcast, Alexandru Stanescu, partner of C SLV um, Legal in Romania, Ali Riza Siadat, partner of Anderton in Germany, Francesco Patti, professor of private law at the University of Bocconi in Italy, Marina Markizic, co-founder and executive director of the European Crypto Initiative in Belgium, and William O'Rourke, co-founder and partner of ORWL Avocats in France. So got another great one for you today. I hope you enjoy it. We have at least one other following this where we're gonna cover things like how all this, how MICA interplays with all the other regulations in the EU and some of the local components of it. So nonetheless, um, hope you enjoy this episode. It's another great one. Welcome to The Encrypted Economy, a podcast exploring the business, laws, regulation, security, and technologies relating to digital assets and data. I am Eric Hess, founder of Hess Legal Counsel, and your host. Join me on this journey, exploring the reach of these transformative technologies. I'm so excited to be back for uh, our third panel series uh, on MICA uh, with our, our guests. Um, you know, last time we we discussed, uh, you know, in the first episode, we discussed definitions and the scope of MICA. In in the last episode, we talked about specifically issuances much more. And today we're going to be talking about CASP or crypto asset service providers. So, uh, again, thanks, everybody, for, for, for joining for this third panel session. Um, and uh, I think we'll just start off with Francisco, um, you know, telling us what a CASP is. Yes, yeah, thank you very much, Eric. So ACASP is a crypto asset service provider. I know that Americans love the acronym uh, VASP. We use CASP, but it's uh, almost the same thing. And uh, 
It's, uh, it's an important part of MICA. A lot of people think that this will be the most impactful part of MICA. It's also a um, set of rules that will harmonize the European law at the level of uh, crypto asset service providers. Nowadays, it's not harmonized. In some countries, we have uh, very precise rules. In others, we don't have any rules. And uh, basically, the only uh, similar playing level field that we have are the rules on uh, anti-money laundering, which now apply to, to, to the crypto asset service providers. But we are going to have these new rules that basically uh, provide different rules uh, with respect to fundamental aspects. So mainly it's licensing. Uh, we've already seen like that licensing is an important part of MICA with respect to the offer of crypto assets. We have uh, licensing for electronic money, money token, um, asset reference tokens. We have this duty to notify other crypto assets. In order to provide crypto asset service providers, we will need uh, licensing. Uh, the good news is that the licensing will be uh, European licensing. And so the fact of having a license in one country allows, in principle, the, the CASP to operate in all the European countries. That's important because nowadays it's not like this. And so if you are allowed to operate in France, theoretically, you cannot offer the crypto asset services to, to a German. And so... The, um, of course, the, the legal landscape is very unclear. In this sense, it will be it will be a, an addition. And then there are also like other rules that deal with uh, crypto asset service providers that are particularly um, of a big size that have a, a significant volume, and they are going to undergo rules which are stricter, and they will also be directly uh, controlled by ESMA, which is the European Authority. Whereas this licensing at, let's say, a national member state level will be provided by the authority of the national state where the crypto asset is, uh, is located. And so it means that if it's located in, in Lithuania, he will apply with the Lithuanian authority. And then uh, due to the uh, treaties of the European Union, the crypto asset service provider will be able to offer its services to, to other countries. This is something which is not which is not new. Uh, we have a, a regulation which is similar to MIFID in this sense. So the idea that basically there is an harmonized set of rules and that uh, this service provider can operate in, in every part of, of Europe. The conditions, uh, let's say, to operate are similar to MIFID. Like you can always make a distinction, not only with MIFID, also with, for instance, rules about credit institutions when it comes to safeguarding of funds or other aspects that are regulated under MIFID. And so like the, the person who is, let's say, um, who knows a European regulatory law finds always a correspondence between what we find for crypto asset service providers and, um, and, and something which already exists. One important aspect, like before, I would say also to uh, nominate a bit, which are these uh, this services, because there is a list of services, is the fact that so when we think about um, CASPs, we refer to, of course, to Binance, to um, Bitpanda, other big players uh, in the world. But uh, like MICA takes also into, into consideration the possibility that these services are provided by, by institutions and uh, entities that already are licensed at a European level. Uh, for instance, credit institutions will have the possibility to, to offer uh, crypto asset services uh, 
And I think that this is uh, is a very it's a very important aspect because it means that basically you're allowing with an express regulation also institutional players to provide services which nowadays are provided only by uh, by entities uh, that uh, that are let's say a bit outside of the institutional financial financial world and i talked about credit institutions but the same holds true also for the, for other types of regulated entities also with respect for instance uh, to investment funds and so this will open up also the possibility for let's call them traditional players to deal with uh, with crypto assets let's say that you are a custodian for digital assets uh, you can, and that's all you're doing. Would it necessarily draw in other licensing requirements? So uh, no, like custody is one of the of the items that we have in the in the Mica as a service uh, as uh, like a crypto asset service provider. Um, and then we can raise, as I've said, a correspondence to something similar that we have at the European level, which we find in Mifid, for example, the custody of financial instruments. And if you look at the rules, you have basically the, the same rules. Uh, what is interesting is that with MICA, you open up the possibility also for people that are already licensed, according to other rules, to uh, provide the same services. And so like when we think about custody, we can think uh, anchorages, for example, uh, an, ex- um, an, an American example of uh, custodian. Um, this new custodian could take a European license and operate uh, all over Europe. And that's a great advantage. But for instance, if we have a player that already does um, custody for financial instruments, it could be possible also to deal with crypto. Like uh, he needs to inform the authority, but this would be this will be grant will, will be granted to him. Then perhaps he will not do it will not do it because uh, of course you need a certain expertise. Uh, but uh, it is possible that they're going to offer also services related to crypto. They could team up with uh, already existent crypto asset service provider. I made the example of of Anchorage. Um, for instance, Anchorage could work with uh, traditional banks and provide uh, custody, given that they have a particular expertise for this. Just to make an example, and uh, and so I think you are open up to a wide array of uh, of crypto asset services, which will be regulated in in a way which is similar to what we already have at at a European level. And um, as I said, the services are different. Now, yes, I, I give you the word, Arisa. Services are different, and you apply always for one or more services. So it means that depending on which is the, the CASP, it will choose one service or the other or more than one. It depends. But uh, basically, you are then allowed to provide the service for which you got the, the license. Yes, I, I would absolutely agree to what you said. And I just wanted to add a little bit on that um, because it goes a little bit in the direction what you were just asking, Eric. So, um, so assuming that we have a crypto custody service provider, and this crypto custody service provider is providing um, the custody of the crypto assets or the safekeeping of the private keys, but then it also offers to its clients, let's say, staking. So, staking is something which you could do uh, with the crypto custody license already, and so. Uh, you, you should look at the crypto custody service provider, what is uh, intended to be provided to the users or to the clients, and then think of the license you may need. And what I think is very interesting is that in the 
most recent version of my car, they added a new casp, which came like in a, I would say in a last second. And it's the, it's the providing transfer services for crypto assets on behalf of third parties. And this is something where I would just to like to raise the question, like to understand uh, what, what you think about it. For me, providing transfer services for crypto assets uh, on behalf of third parties, it is good that you, when you look inside the Mika, if you scroll a little bit down, it also defines what it means. And uh, so there is a definition for that. And it says that, um, yeah, providing, um, providing transfer services for crypto assets on behalf of third parties means to transfer on behalf of a natural or legal person's crypto assets from one distributed ledger address or account to another. So I think it is kind of like catch-all clause, um, something which you which they put in because they saw players like, let's say, OpenSea, where you can connect your wallet and you can transfer your, your, your NFT to some other wallet. And I believe that the 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 yeah the, the, the ones who put this clause into the Mika, they were thinking of covering something like OpenSea or something like uh, Wallet Connect, where you provide a service or where you can connect your wallet and then transfer your assets to some other wallet. And uh, many crypto custodians they do something similar. So I would uh, I would like to understand from my uh, co-speakers what do you think is this providing transfer services for crypto assets on behalf of third parties, is this already covered by crypto custody? So is crypto custody broader or is it something different or is it maybe something totally different, which I didn't understand, but this is a very interesting one. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good point uh, to add on this. Like, of course, it's a bit worrying to hear the scope of this uh, service. Um, there is a recital that clarifies that like nodes are not contemplated. So the fact that you are a node and do and basically you contribute to transactions, this does not make you a crypto asset service provider, which is good news. Otherwise, we we can close the blockchains. And uh, but but you're right. Like it's something which is uh, which is a bit unclear. I think, but it's the first time that I think about it. So perhaps it's completely wrong. Also, bridges can could be like a, a difficult, uh, difficult point here. Um, and uh, yes, custody. I see it as a more static uh, service in which you basically uh, put your crypto inside. Although I have to say that often they also provide other services because a lot of time they buy on behalf of uh, of the client, and so. Um, it will be interesting to see like uh, how many services you need to be uh, requesting in order to be licensed to provide like a service which seems a uh, normal custody because if you provide also um, exchange transfer etc which is kind uh, of common for these players then uh, i think that in the end you will pro you will ask a license for a wide array and perhaps what is meant by custody is really like the static custody, whereas the transfer is something which uh, which uh, implies also a dynamic transferring from one from one um, uh, address to the uh, to another. I guess the, the the question is is to what extent if you're a pure technology provider, right, where you're just providing some component of the transfer, you don't have custody. You maybe you're 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 providing. Uh, just an interface, you know, between two parties. I guess it could capture that. That's a pretty. That would be a pretty broad, uh, almost a vendor interpretation. Yes, this is uh, as I've said. There is this recital which I invite you to read, which is 63D, according to the 
version that I have, and uh, and it basically excludes some 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 players, but uh, it does not include the validators, nodes, or miners that may be part of confirming a transaction. Um, be, even even though like they they offer they offer some kind of crypto asset transfer service, for example, custody and administration of crypto assets. Um, so it tries to make a distinction here, but uh, I think as we said a lot of other times, like there isn't the willingness of uh, pointing to the technology intended as the blockchain nodes, miners, and everyone that contributes to the validation of the of the transactions. But I think that like everyone else could be in danger, and also the examples that were made by by Alrisa could be catched by this. That's true. Just to maybe to to add something about what uh, Francesco just just uh, said about uh, especially about the infrastructure, like the the layer one, which most of it don't fall within the scope of the regulation. I think it's understand to recall that uh, and to to keep in mind that of course this regulation um, uh, actually targets the intermediaries between like the people, like like the the, the legal entity or the individuals. And uh, and uh, a service provider. So of course, when you are providing like only a tech, like if you are only a tech services, or if you are like, for instance, if you are the subcontractors of um, uh, of uh, some uh, of of a service that is offering the service at the to, to the end user, you don't fall within this cap. The be the most easiest uh, example to understand it's. Like the custodian, like the crypto, most of the crypto, crypto custodian, such as uh, Fireblocks, Ledger Vault, and I probably forget a, a ton of them. They are they are not regulated because they are offering the services to uh, I don't know Binance, uh, Kraken, Coinbase, and so on. And these services are regulated because they are offering a custodian a custodianship services to you and you and you and me, you and us. And it's very important to keep in mind because in, in the in the crypto world, sometimes we have a, a very tech approach to to the regu we try to have a very tech technological approach to the regulation and to forget that it's only this interface between 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 the enfin, between the market and and the and the and the crypto which is regulated, and all the infrastructure the the tech the the back office is not regulated yet. I think um, just to add again, um, I think it's very important when we think about what is infrastructure. So is infrastructure, again, only layer one or is it something that is like MetaMask and Ledger, what uh, you just mentioned? And I think that going back into the definition of what is a crypto as a service provider is going to be vital for all this, um, in a way, projects to look into what they need to be compliant with. And there are two other things. One is... Um, we have a definition of crypto as a service provider, but I think what is also important, and we have seen that this is happening um, right now, which being implemented in maybe some other regulations, is what's, uh, what is the definition of a virtual as a service provider in uh, the Fed of recommendations. So this is something that regulation uh, regulators as the European Union and others are, of course, observing. And uh, I remember when the members of the parliament said that uh, for example, the the 
uh, transfer funds regulation is one of the most ambitious implementations of the FATF recommendations in the European Union. So that is also something that I think we need to look into. And the, the second thing is there are new regulations and new directives coming up that might be linked to some of the similar projects that we are now just discussing. So we're having this AML package, but also the DEC-8 directive that is basically defining the way uh, how uh, member states should uh, exchange information uh, regarding taxes. And in this directive, at least one of the drafts, we see that the crypto asset service providers are defined in a different way from what we see in Mika. So just understanding what Mika does and how it regulates crypto as a service providers will not be enough for all those projects in the future. They will need to look into specific regulations too. So I would like to add on that. So you're absolutely right, Marina. Even the, in the inside the red settle, you can see that Mika is uh, referring to FATF and saying that For us, the um, yeah, recommendations of FATF and the ongoing recommendations of FATF are very important and even says when analyzing a business, please always also look at the FATF recommendation. Therefore, I'm absolutely with you. And William, what you just said uh, regarding, um, you called it the back office service providers, which are not regulated because they provide the services to the CASPs. Uh, we have a, a similar um, you know, positioning in Germany. So the German regulator actually provided lots of material uh, on the regulation of crypto asset service providers. And there's a clear understanding by the German regulator, which I understand is also um, yeah, something which the Mika and the other member states back, is that um, if you have a, someone who's providing either technological service or even um, yeah, hardware, not just software services, um, they are not covered by Mika as long as they do not have access to the private keys and they do not have access to the uh, key recovery phrases and the key recovery package. So you mentioned uh, Fireplugs. You're absolutely right with that because Fireplugs is having an MPC solution. So it's a SaaS solution, a software as a service solution. So anyone who wants to do trading with crypto uh, is, uh, can get this license to use the SaaS solution of Fireplugs. And then the one who's using this service of Fireplugs, this person has access to the crypto assets and to the private keys. Uh, in the case of an MPC, the private keys, they're just produced instantly when you do the transfer of the crypto assets. Therefore, uh, there's no uh, possibility of Fireplugs to have having access to the private keys. This is one thing. And if you then look on the on the hardware devices, for example, what Metaco, a Swiss company, is doing with HSM, so um, their modules which they produce, uh, there you have also again to look at uh, are these modules, these hardware modules lying with the bank and with the service provider? Is it like on-premise? And do they have the key recovery uh, information? Uh, and if this is true, then the ones who are providing the services, it could be also cloud service like with IBM and Azure and so on, they're all non-regulated, they're all non-CASPs, uh, and the others who use the services, they would be the CASPs. We talked a little bit about the carve-outs. Do you think there's other gray areas in terms of the definition? Yeah, so I, I didn't want to start this discussion because I thought that it's going to be a big discussion in our, uh, in our talk today. Uh, decentralized finance. <laughs> so this is a big carve-out. It's a major carve-out. And this is something uh, I think which very interesting to the entire market because I think DeFi is growing and growing. And I think we all agree that um, DeFi is out of the picture and maybe Mika too. 
So Mika 2.0 is going to cover DeFi, and uh, so. Uh, and, but this is very interesting to look at what uh, Mika is right now saying about uh, DeFi. When is uh, DeFi not covered, and when maybe DeFi products are covered? Because this is also written inside the Mika, and the wording says if you have a legal person or a, a person which uh, uh, where Mika would apply to, then Mika applies. But if we do not have a legal person, and this is the problem actually what we have with the definition of DeFi, when is DeFi really decentralized fully and when is it not decentralized, that's one thing. And then, but what also Mika says, if you have a token, for instance, so you have a DeFi network and there's a token which is issued and some CASP wants to trade with a DeFi token, then the DeFi product is regulated if the CASP inside the European Economic Area is letting this uh, yeah, DeFi uh, token being traded or providing services for such DeFi token. Then again, uh, it's covered. So, But I would also like to hear from my co-speakers what you think about how we should um, understand DeFi. So when is a decentralized uh, network or maybe a decentralized autonomous organization decentralized in a regulatory sense by maybe looking at the voting rights and shareholder rights or shareholder positions. We have like this control definition and definition of a mandatory holding and stuff like that. So what do you think? So that's, of course, a super important question. And um, of like I was super worried about this problem when there was the definition of DAO in the MICA that then they have excluded. Now we have two elements that to me are important. First of all, there is the fully decentralized, which it's very difficult to, you know, uh, we have also to bear in mind that like MICA does not cover like all the activities that are made uh, by the customers on uh, its own initiative. And so like I can feel that DeFi presents itself in a way which is not uh, an invitation to, to So this is, I think if, if DeFi will, maintain an approach which is very cautious, like not using the languages of the European nations, which actually it's not done by a lot of them. I think like this could be avoided altogether because DeFi projects do not have a, a permanent establishment in the European Union normally. And so like I think that there is a kind of indication uh, of uh, how you could avoid all the application of these rules for, for DeFi. But of course, like the problem of fully decentralization <laughs> remains let's imagine that we talk about um, a project that uh, is european in nature a DeFi project and we have some in france uh, especially i would say like how does uh, this project deals and i think that there we have to look at the at the recital fully uh, decentralized i would say it means that uh, first of all you don't need a an entity which uh, which pays dividends this this would be tremendous i would say And then the voting rights have to be quite distributed. In what sense is different to, to say? Um, for instance, we have a, a good article of, uh, of uh, Mark Boyron, who is a, a known uh, crypto lawyer in the US, who theorized a bit like what does it mean to have a sufficient decentralization? And um, like there isn't a, a direct response on, the, on this issue. But uh, the important thing is that you don't you, you need you need not to have a, a central entity that controls. Like he puts this number, which is 10 different points of decision making spread a bit all over the world. Uh, and plus you you have to add on this also the, the but of course, like 
it's something which must be seen. What I get from this indication is just that that basically you are saying that there is something which falls outside of the scope of application no matter what, and uh, it's the, the true DAO. But I would carefully say that uh, it's better not to offer this uh, DeFi project through the through the front end to European customers. Like having always a very um, careful approach, not using uh, Italian, French, or Spanish, which could be one of the signals that you're offering in these countries. And uh, and yes, I would I would. If you uh, apply this approach, I would say that it's difficult that they're going to uh, enforce MICA against this uh, this play as, as it happened in the in the United States on the basis of the rules that we have. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of an ongoing debate in terms of front ends. You know, I, I think there's a recognition that a, a lot of the back end processing for DeFi you're you're just simply not going to capture by by any regulation, U.S. included. And so then, you know, you start to get into these difficult questions. It's like, who's regulated? Because how many pieces of the puzzle are spread out amongst different players and then and, and, and who has responsibility? The SEC in like a Reg ATS last year, when, when they were talking about a revision, again, this sort of is a U.S. CASP type questions, they they raise this notion that you could have multiple operators that could collectively form an exchange and each operator would uh, be, be regulated. So each piece of the puzzle would be subject to regulation, which was snuck in a footnote and, and a lot of people really reacted strongly against because then you get into our developers responsible. Um, so it, it's, you know, the decentralization is question because to, to the extent you regulate it, you can easily just break apart the different components further or, or further disintermediate like front ends. You could have it pulled off of like a GitHub or, or some other, uh, you know, where you're plugging in yourself where there's also uh, Urbit, which is an ecosystem where, you know, nobody, you, you, you can't really identify any particular centralized actor in any way, shape or form. So uh, it's a little bit like whack-a-mole once you start getting into these questions. Um, and I think, uh, again, I think both in the U.S. and in the European Union, I think I, I believe I see like a reluctance to go too to be too aggressive in sort of addressing this because, you know, number one, the size of the space uh, and, and, and number two, um, just the, the challenges that it, it raises. I think what's interesting here, um, as you mentioned, is that first. What is the, there is no legal entity, for example. Uh, we have seen, I think in Europe, we don't have any specific definition uh, that I have seen of uh, what is decentralization or uh, sufficiently decentralized, except from what was mentioned already in Mika. But we can see, for example, what happened um, in the Netherlands when it comes to tornado cash. So in these cases, it's not directly linked to Mika, but at the same time, it's kind of helping us understand how the prosecutor sees the um, role of, um, of a person that can be a contributor, that can be a developer, but could also have, in a way, managerial effort into what was happening uh, at the specific time. Um, and I think that... In a way, at least in, in that case, there was a connection to uh, their interest of uh, the specific uh, contributor to uh, the, um, the higher price of the token versus um, how they were offering or how they were developing uh, this, uh, this specific uh, product. Um, and I think what's also interesting, what happened this year, we had quite a lot of um, 
uh, events happening in the U.S. with the Ukidao. Um, and I think that was one of the most important, at least to date, uh, feedback from the U.S. on how they understand DAOs and uh, decentralization. And in that part, even any type of um, voting or any type of activity from one person would mean that they are in a way involved in this uh, entity that can be a DAO or that can be an incorporated partnership. And I think that that could be um, really devastating to the ecosystem if that would be true also in uh, in Europe. Um, and in this case, uh, just at, at this moment, uh, the uh, law commission in the UK is also um, asking the, the industry, the community to uh, get some feedback on understanding better DAOs, what DAOs are, and if there would need to be something like a, a new law on DAOs. And we see all over um, also the, the US, uh, new uh, states looking into uh, having new laws for DAOs. So I think that in a way that's not just financial regulation, is also uh, looking into how do we regulate, how do we define legal entities. We'll pursue, I think, DeFi uh, a little bit more on our, our next episode, but maybe we, we could start to move toward the, um, the obligations of the CASPs. Yes, okay, we can draw a lot, so please help me. I will begin a bit and then we can discuss about uh, the issues. Uh, like, first of all, you have to be located in the EU, which uh, which is held as, as important. We have this element also in other in other cases, like uh, there is the willingness of having like a um, hard basis in the EU in order to exercise some uh, oversight and uh, control over an entity which is existing. And so, like, it's not possible to apply from, uh, I don't know, Asia and get the license and then operate without having an establishment in the in the European Union. So this is the first requirement, which which is important. And and on this, like you you need to to basically ask for an authorization. And also here we have a, a very, very long list of information that you have to give to the authority and um and the authority will control on uh, on the not only like on the type of activity that you want to provide, but also on the substantive capacity of performing this kind of service in in a way which is of course safe for for the users. And um, apart now from the from the single requirements also related to the to the capital that you have to have or other aspects, I think that another important element is the, the fact that there will be also like a control over the people that decide that are uh, within the, the governance of the of the CASP, which is also something that that we have uh, in the financial in financial law. But basically, there is also a scrutiny about uh, the real capacity from a professional point of view of running uh, this type of. Uh, of dangerous, uh, dangerous business, and uh, like so, the first step is basically this this very long list of indications that need to be provided to the authority. Then the authority has forty days uh, to uh, respond and to say whether it fits with the conditions set by the by the regulation. And here, I ask to myself because I see that nowadays for the countries that have already implemented this kind of rules, it takes a lot of time. Whereas here. My feeling is that they want basically to implement a system which must be faster for the in order to get a response in a in a way which is uh, very very fast. Once you get the authorization, you can start operating, and then basically you have rules concerning the control of the CASP, like uh, which is provided 
at the in the first place by the authority of the country in which the CASP operates. But uh, but then there is also like a European level in which ESMA and EBA will will also intervene and rules concerning this uh, this supervision. And um, yes, now I think we can also enter a bit more into into detail with with the rules, perhaps commenting on on something. But that's basically the the skeleton of the of the rules. It's not so new, and uh, it brings basically to have some people that take the responsibility and uh, and that have a recognizable position within the European Union. So I, I would add on that. So once you have the license, it's not over. You have to make sure that everything you did to receive the license, which, for example, the fit and proper tests of the um, directors of the company and so on, this has to stay also ongoing, uh, looking forward for the business. So. You're not just doing it once to get the license. Ongoing business has also always to make sure that everything you, you did to get the license has to be the same. And then when we look at the obligations which the crypto asset service providers have, we differentiate between the um, obligations which are um, there for all the crypto asset service providers, so the general obligations which are in Chapter 2 and Article 59 following. And then we have specific obligations for specific crypto asset service providers, such as for the crypto custodians. So I'm just going to pick on some of them, and I think we're going to talk later about some specific ones. And so the general ones, for example, they are the obligations to act honestly, fairly, and professionally in the best interest of clients and information to clients and so on. There are some uh, further general requirements, such as uh, prudential requirements, um, there are uh, requirements to inform the supervisory authority. There are uh, specific requirements to when you went down your company and stuff like that. But then when it comes to the specific requirements, I'm just picking on the crypto custody service provider. It is very interesting to see that the crypto custody service provider um, has some certain obligations uh, where we see that uh, this is very important when we look at the most recent incidents with the crypto exchanges and crypto custody service providers, such as uh, the obligation to ring fence the assets of the um, CASP from the assets of the client. So ring fencing the assets to make sure that in case of insolvency, the assets of the um, uh, of the CASP are, are, are yeah, ring fenced from the assets of the users and the assets of the users are not going into the insolvency um yeah, into the insolvency proceeding and they're covered, they're protected from that. And this is something what, what I would say is very interesting to see. And this also we already have in the general obligations where it says the general obligations of safekeeping of crypto assets and of funds of the users. And, and I believe this is a very strong uh, list of uh, obligations which the CAST are going to have. Does that ring fencing apply to like a, a bankruptcy or insolvency analysis? Would it be governing? Yes, this should be the case because it, it tries to avoid the commingling of the of the assets, which we saw is so is so dangerous in uh, in these cases. And uh, yes, I also agree that this is a very important point. And um, yes, of course, like if you if you read really to act uh, honestly, fairly, it's something which is uh, which is quite generic. But of course, the idea is that the first interest should be should be for the clients. This is uh, this is something which is uh, which is absolutely true then there are requirements related to the to the minimum capital 
which is not enormous in my opinion. It's like 125, I think, in general, and 154 trading platform. Not enormous, but uh, we have to be aware that nowadays we have a lot of companies in the EU which uh, basically every time um, have a minimum capital required by the law, which can be, for instance, in Italy, it's 10K. And so you don't have solid uh, companies that, that operate service, um, which is very, very dangerous. Um, what I also wanted to add, because custody is, of course, important, there is also here, like the indications are quite generic as to the, of course, type of technology, but there is the indication that also the IT services and technologies that are adopted by the CASP should be uh, of first level. And within this first uh, communication that is uh, provided to the authorities, uh, there must be also the indication of how they basically organize their activity from a technological point of view. And so also this will, will play a role, uh, although I think that there will be best practices for, uh, for the person that asked for the authorization. But there's also the willingness of entering a bit, not only on the organization with respect to the personal part, but also like in looking how they organize their activity from a technological point of view, which is, I think, challenging uh, because uh, the technologies are quite new. And if we imagine that a lot of uh, also traditional players can access the market, I think that there, there will be uh, more scrutiny than, than now and more transparency. I'm going to actually just circle back to the insolvency. If keys are on an exchange, um, you know, you, you may see it in your account, but if you're dealing with a centralized exchange, they may keep their, you know, the, the, the assets on another exchange because that's the way it's, it's typically. So if that ultimate exchange goes under, it can impact your ownership, despite the fact that you see it in your account, it isn't really segregated and there's certain things you can do technically. For example, you could um, you could ensure that those assets actually have to move through like a Fireblocks implementation or to a third-party custodian. Uh, and, and, and that custodial relationship or that Fireblocks relationship where you are a signet, that you being the, the user, the client, is a, uh, is, is a signatory to releasing those keys, that would be one way of segregating it. But otherwise, they would tend to be uh, like... You know, there could be an accounting mechanism where they're where you're treating those keys as as running to the particular user, but the segregation isn't really happening. They could be held on an omnibus basis. They could be held at the exchange. This is largely record keeping, but it doesn't necessarily, in the context of a bankruptcy, there are omnibus assets where, like, if if I'm a customer and you're a customer, then we share. You know, we may have claims on the estate but we may not necessarily get it. It also further complicates it in the U.S. with state law because certain states recognize property differently. Just curious how you think Micah would or wouldn't address those types of questions. So maybe just start and you, my co-speakers, they, they just add on that. So, um, so the Micah is, I think, very thought through because the obligation of segregation is not just applying when you set up the wallets. Um, the MICA says specifically you have to make sure that the segregation goes through the entire operations of the custodian, which means that um, if you if you take the example of Coinbase, we all know that Coinbase did a filing last year with the SEC where it turned out that there is a trading wallet where the assets of uh, Coinbase and the assets of the users are getting mixed up when they're doing some trading. Uh, this is meant by... Uh, you have to do the segregation through the operations. It means 
not just when you put up the wallet, when they put their assets there also, when you do trading, never mix up the assets of your users with the assets of the crypto exchange. And to my understanding, at least in, in, uh, in, in the European economic area, this is important when it comes to the insolvency estate. So if the exchange is becoming insolvent, only the estate is covered where, the, uh, where it's clear that it belongs to the exchange. But where you have really a segregation where you say this all belongs to the users, uh, any insolvency administrator would not touch that assets because uh, there is a right of segregation by the users. And so it is not covered by the state. And I believe that the, the MICA is very thought through. Uh, MICA could have also done something uh, different. They could have uh, uh, just copied the investment services directive because under the investment services directive, um, you, as a custodian, you're only either allowed to do custody or trading. You're not allowed to do both. So you would need to have two entities if you want to provide trading and custody. This we all have in Germany right now when it comes to uh, crypto trading. So you always need to have two entities. One entity which is taking care of the crypto assets uh, in sense of custody. And the other entity is allowed to provide trading services. But Mica did not go this way. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, but uh, this uh, allows you theoretically to be custodian and provide trading. But then you have to make sure that from an operational perspective that you have segregation till the end. Great. So, uh, Alexander. Uh, yeah, just a point here. Um, in, a, in a way, just to complement Alireza from a common law perspective and to, you know, to bring to your attention that there is a very good decision, even if it's not from the US, but from Australia. But basically, you know, it, it goes into the theory of uh, uh, holding in trust. It, it comes from the, it stems from the uh, hack of Cryptopia, you know, one of the, which was hacked in 2016 or 17. And afterwards, of course, we've, we've seen other hacks and, you know, other estates are being built and the bankruptcies. And the, the, uh, the judge makes a very good distinction of, of what is held in trust and what is held in the state of the, of the, of the crypto exchange, uh, with some, you know, uh, interesting variations, uh, across the UK, Australia, and even the US. So, you know, for, for, for our listeners, uh, I really found that, uh, a very good decision from the Australian judge. Yeah, I also want to add something on this because, like, also as Eric has said, uh, like in the end, it's, it's a like private law question. What do we have? Is it a property or who is the owner? Uh, what custody custody mean? Uh, on this, we have also like this uh, new uh, Unidra principles and assets that uh, perhaps are not like super comprehensive, but they define a bit what is meant by custody, actual control. And so it's interesting because it's like they provide definitions which should work for common law and civil law legal systems. My feeling is that also here, like the entire system which deals with crypto assets and uh, CASPs is going in the direction that the ownership is on the user and not on the on the crypto exchange. I say this also from the perspective of uh, of taxation uh, nowadays and uh, like holding crypto assets for like as a owner for an exchange could also be like dangerous for taxation repercussions that may arise. 
for instance, in Italy, we have now new rules on taxation. And, uh, and basically, they take also into consideration the example, uh, the case in which the crypto asset service provider holds uh, on behalf of the, of the client. And uh, like, if you look at this rule, they make clear that basically the, the ownership is not on the, on the exchange, but uh, that they deal just with the, with the custody. Um, then, of course, like one has also to, to look into the, the provisions of the general terms and conditions. Uh, my feeling is that also normally they go in the direction of, uh, of custody, but it's not always the case. So I don't remember exactly, but it was, there was a study made on the, on the provisions of the American U.S. exchanges. And there, like, there was a, a big inconsistency with respect to how they define the relationship between the clients and uh, and the exchange as such, uh, my feeling is that at the European in the European Union you are very careful to distinguish between the spheres of ownership, and you make clear that the relationship is just custody on behalf, which is so a personal relationship between the 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 CASP and the user. So. There's a number of obligations that we can address. I'd like to sort of walk through these obligations. So we can take them one by one if you if you want. Yes, let's do it. <laughs> you already have introduced like a, like like I, I, at at a high level like most of them, but I think first it's important to understand that there is like regarding the obligation to 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 get the license. I understand that there is like three categories of obligation. We have talked about the equity requirement or the insurance uh, of the asset, which is uh, uh, either one uh, on another. This this obligation, like of course, aim to protect the asset of the client. And we recently have, unfortunately, see some very uh, critical example of this uh, asset protection. You have another kind of obligation which focus more on the on the cybersecurity. Um, uh, which uh, which have to be understood in line with the DORA uh, regulation. So the idea, if we want to keep it simple, is that uh, we found the, the, the Mika uh, asks the CASP to uh, to to be uh, in position to ensure that the, the the IT system are safe. So you have to be audited uh, 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 regularly. You have to 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 organize some pe uh, pain testing, like 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 white white hacking of your system. You have to anticipate like a failure of of your system. So maybe we will talk uh, more deeply about it later. But the idea is to reach a level of cybersecurity, which which is the same as the other uh, financial intermediaries, and which will be uh, if as a, if Dora uh, works well, it will be a, a quite high level of of cybersecurity. And the 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 last uh, um, group of obligation uh, are more traditional. It's about, of course, the fit and proper of the of the uh, significant uh, executive and the significant shareholder, but also a lot of obligation about how you are conducting your business, uh, following, of course, what we ask to like all the other financial intermediaries. Uh, you have to prevent conflict of interest. You have to ensure the best execution policy of of the order of your client. You have to provide like a fair, uh, a transparent uh, commercial uh, uh, documentation to your clients. You have to offer your client a way to complain and deal with this complaint in a like properly and uh, and a professional manner. 
um, there is probably more obligation. I forget, but I I, I rely on my on my co-speaker to 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 conclude. And of course, this is what you need to to do to get the license. But after, as it already uh, as it already has been said by by my co-speaker, uh, you have to keep this level of of uh, of, uh, of compliance and we all know that the level of compliance will gradually uh, rise as any other uh, as, as any, uh, any other license uh, everywhere in the world like yeah. the, the the level like slowly rise year, year after year and lastly you will be supervised by your local regulator so if you are if you're in germany it will be the bafin if you are in in belgium it will be the Bel the belgian regulator and this regulator will have much more power to supervise you because it's one of the limits of the current system when you have registration is that there is no such a thing that the regulator can ask you to to information uh, ask you to provide and the regulator is sometimes a little bit like harmless uh, in front of like non very professional behavior but but still not illicit behavior um yeah it was very very broad presentation but i i let uh, alireza continue Oh, thank you, William. I just wanted to add uh, some some things. Uh, I mean, it's it's very complex to get a license. We see it already when you apply for a banking license or for an investment firm license. So the Mika license is not different from that. And one part which many people don't know or don't see is that no matter if you apply for own license or if you try to acquire, so to try to buy a license entity. The shareholder control procedure is something which is very difficult. So the shareholder control procedure means that the authority will check who are the shareholders of, uh, who are the becoming shareholders, who are the shareholders behind the company which applies for the license. So the, the authority wants to understand who are the, 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 the those who have the mandatory shares and mandatory shares means anyone who has more than 10% shares voting rights or, um, or capital shares uh, actually in uh, mika it's 20 percent but for banking and for other institutes it's 10 so let's say 20 percent and um, so the regulator wants to make sure that these persons they are the shareholders so the, the, the main the major shareholders they are uh, fit and proper themselves which means that um, the shareholders should not have done any criminal activities especially when it comes to anti-money laundering and also anything which is in relation to insolvency. And this is also the reason why companies such as Bitmax did not succeed to buy a regulated bank in Germany because they intended to do some crypto business in Germany and they intended to buy a fully licensed bank. And they could not do so because the uh, some of the yeah, main founders of Bitmax, uh, as we know, they had some proceedings uh, going on against them in the US. So, and what the regulator wants to understand, where is the money coming from, which is invested into the business? So if the money is coming from somewhere where you do not have some clear paperwork, so you cannot demonstrate you have some tax income or some tax yeah, confirmation for that money, then you cannot use it to invest it in a company, to open up a crypto company in Europe. And this is also something which is very important. Uh, and this is also the reason why you cannot just come and say, yeah, uh, I'm a very uh, successful crypto player, not regulated, so I have uh, sufficient funds. I'm just going and buying some regulated institute. And this is not going to work in the future. And this is, I think, very important to know. Excellent. Um, and also, amidst all those obligations would be um, market abuse. Um, so so 
what are the requirements, what are the applicable provisions uh, regarding market abuse um, for CASPs? And, and how does it differ from like uh, MAR? And maybe you could sort of contrast the two. If you look comparatively at the, at the market abuse regulation and the uh, uh, MICA abuse regulation protections, um, the type of prohibitions are pretty much similar um, from the get-go, so, you know, on the face of them. <coughs> it's also worth mentioning that uh, MAR as a regulation was basically created for uh, consumer protection and prohibition of insider dealing and disclosure of information for transfer securities. So the MAR is very much linked to MIFID too in Europe and what's a security. Um, so from this perspective, uh, we don't see a, a directly a conflict of the two unless we get to a point where a crypto asset will also be a security. And again, it will be a sort of a discussion on what's the supervening regulation being applicable. This is from a theoretical point of view. But then if you look at the prohibited activities, they are very much you know, similar. So it will depend a lot on the specifics of the of the case uh, where, let's say, uh, MICA will be, you know, covering some aspects which are not covering into covered by the by the market abuse regulation. And you know, just to um, we can get afterwards more into the MICA specific uh, um, prohibitions, but you know, just. The, this is, would be the overall framework in which to consider uh, the MAR and uh, the MICA. I think just to, to add something about what uh, Alexander just said, uh, this is maybe one of the most important parts of, uh, of MICA in my, in my opinion, because it is something uh, totally new, like this uh, market abuse regulation on the crypto asset market. And it's something that I think the crypto asset uh, market, uh, unfortunately, uh, um, uh, needs this, this regulation quite a lot because we have seen uh, we have seen uh, uh, a lot of, of proof of evidence that there is uh, like wash trading, insider dealing. Even some people on Twitter are very proud to do inside in, in, insider in, uh, insider dealing and insider trading uh, in the in the market uh, in the in the in the crypto asset market. And it's something that personally I'm I'm very. Uh, um, almost excited to see how the regulator will adapt uh, what uh, exists for for years now on the on the on the securities uh, on the securities and, and on the financial instrument market to the to the crypto asset area i believe that they will start as usual they will start very like like uh, like slowly and with maybe the the most basic obligation but um, but it's something that will i believe like really change the 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 face of the of the crypto asset uh, of the crypto asset market in the next uh, I don't know five to ten years and uh, and allow a true democratization because you can regulate every everyone uh, uh, around the table with the with the CASP uh, with the CASP license for instance if these people they are not controlled on the behavior they have in the market you will never you will never truly have a, a fair and a transparent market 
and it is what exactly like market abuse uh, is about. So yeah, it was j just my two my two cents. <laughs> right, and, and and I'd imagine that maybe that's an area which generates a, a lot of rulemaking at the local authority level. But Ali Reza. Yes, I mean this. This is also something we 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 touched on on the last uh, recording. So when you look at the white paper and you look at an ICO, what we nowadays see is that you have ICOs um, and then you have this pump and dump activity. So you have a coin which is basically worthless, but then a group of people around the issuer they just start pumping that uh, coin and pumping the price, and then you have groups like Telegram channels where people just uh, write there, yeah, the next big thing, so invest in this coin. And in the end of the day, it's a, it's a circle of people around the issuer who just try to pump the coin and then to get out, yeah? And something like this will be not allowed in the future. And this will be, this will be, yeah, this will be prevented by also the insider trading prohibition rules and other rules which are going to come. And I think you have to read the, the, the white paper together with the MAR and the, so the, the market abuse regulation inside the MICA and the insider trading prohibition together, because then you understand that this is basically giving lots of protection for the consumer and for the one who's going to buy a token, uh, which is coming from an ICO, from a token generating event. Um, and therefore, I think that this uh, market abuse and also the uh, insider trading regulation coming with uh, Mika is, is very important to the market and it's going to cover something which is uh, so far uh, something very dangerous for those who want to invest in crypto and have no knowledge at all. Uh, fully agree on Ali Reza's and, uh, point. And, uh, you know, just to give a, a, also a bit of flavor, um, together with Ali Reza and uh, some of our colleagues from the Think Block Tank, which again it's an organization of uh, of European lawyers. Back in 2019, we had this debate, and we even issued a, a working paper on token regulations in Europe, and we covered the market abuse regulation. And based on the debate, even if you have a sort of a, so, unless it's a fraud, so like a sort of a rug pull, uh, all these activities of pump and dump were not regulated across Europe uh, in order for the market abuse regulation to catch them. So they, they were outside the scope. Whatever would, would have been in normal terms in a, in, in a normal trading environment, insider uh, dealing or, or sort of market manipulation for the crypto, it was still the uh, wild, wild west. So from this perspective, Mika, with, even if it's not the most innovative, let's say, text in the Mika, it does provide and covers this uh, this uh, gap, which was previously uh, part of the crypto market. You know, to be honest. Yeah, and and maybe yeah, absolutely uh, in line with you. But it's it it would be much more productive than only to the consumer because. Uh, it reminds me of something what happened to what, what happened like uh, two years ago. I was I was assisting a client in a in a in a case where like there was an insurance that 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 was uh, that was uh, about uh, so uh, a reimburse uh, a huge amount of damage happening in in in, uh, in uh, ether actually so in crypto asset and 
on the middle of the negotiation. Uh, so we, we we have asked uh, you know a lot of expertise like on the technical side, but also on the on the economical side. Fine, you you I, I think you probably understand the context. And at the middle of the of the of the negotiation, we realized that we don't we we didn't find it was very complicated to find a trustful source of information about the price. Like the price of the editor, you 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 rely on what on CoinGecko, on CoinMarketCap, but CoinMarketCap it's a it's an average of of pricing from some very serious exchange. I don't know, for instance, uh, Coinbase or Kraken or or even Binance, uh, even if I'm not 100% sure about Binance. And you have also the price the price of Ether at, at this time come from a lot of offshore exchange, and you you have you have, you, you are absolutely not sure if if there is not a lot of fake volume and wash and wash trading and so on. So even to have a, a, this mere information about the price of Ether, like in 2019, it was approximately impossible to have uh, to have some and when we were talking about uh, of course about a uh, hundred of thousand of euro of, of difference between the, the different source of pricing so it creating a new negotiation within the negotiation and it was for me the first time i, I realized that it's not possible in in a market so it's not uh, i don't know it's complicated in the market when you are you don't have uh, uh, this this market abuse uh, uh, practice preventing because you you are not sure about the even the price of an asset so it's 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 a huge factor of trust for everybody around the table consumer of course regulators but also like market player or even uh, if you are i don't know a lawyer during a negotiation uh, with an insurance mm -hmm. uh, if i may recall on this one uh, what uh, william was mentioning uh, i got this situation as well even for contracts and sort of a, establishing a sort of a bench international or european benchmark for the price of a specific crypto uh, crypto asset and what we tried to do in Romania we've seen that there was some public information that the Romanian authority uh, seized uh, assets from illegal activity and they were doing an auction on some bitcoins so what we tried to and they were like providing a sort of a price and the idea was like based on what are you establishing the price so for that so in order for us in Romania to consider you know their methodology as the you know the, the best legal approach but unfortunately i did not get a, a a formal reply and then in some cases we basically advise clients uh, let's just look at uh, crypto regulated exchanges within the european union wherever they have a license and we'll do a sort of a, a weighted average between the prices uh, based on a couple of of exchanges that was it, uh, but it was, you know, nothing legal, but mostly, you know, a practical uh, point. But this is indeed, it's important for what's to be considered market manipulation because you'll need, you know, some benchmarks and uh, standards. Maybe another topic to, to touch on, and again, you, you, we can put this in a different order, but um, liability. I, I, you know, we had talked about this on, on the last podcast about an issuer liability, right? Uh, the obligation. Um, but in the context of a CASP, what is the CASP's potential liability under MICA? If I understand well your question, Eric, it's about what, what is the liability of a CASP if something went wrong for one reason or another? Cybersecurity, uh, cyber attacks, thefts, malfunctions. I mean, whatever the threat come from inside or outside, yeah. But basically, you have uh, you have as 
Of course, uh, as any other regulated financial uh, intermediaries, you will have uh, like three levels of, of liabilities. Um, two levels that are common to anyone, it is the civil liabilities and the, and the criminal liabilities. So civil liabilities, it's if you are creating a damage, you 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 need to answer about uh, about your 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 bad behavior or your or your wrongful or your misconduct. Um, it's it's common actually. Uh, criminal liability, um, you will you are of course personally as a as a as an exec, but also uh, as as a company, you can you can be subject to to criminality charge. Which is interesting for CASP is you have the the normal criminal uh, uh, criminal uh, uh, infringement, but you have also this new criminal infringement, who come from the the market abuse uh, um, uh, practice prevention, for instance market manipulation, uh, insider trading, and so on. So it is a new level, a new category of white crypto, white collar crime uh, um, uh, activities. And you have the last the last stage, but which is the most important for regarding Mika, it will be the administrative uh, liability. So it will be the liability between you and your regulators. So the regulators will uh, will will supervise you and will ask you information and and will will ask you to basically comply with uh, with all of the obligation of uh, of of uh, of Mika. For instance, regarding your communication. Uh, regarding if you change your shareholders, if you are not segregating the phone of the asset of your client, and so on, and um, and this is the most uh, the most direct, the the fastest way and the cheapest way, if I may say, because it's if it's free. I, actually, you, no, nobody has to pay a lawyer for it uh, to uh, to to make sure that the the cast will follow the rules, and of course the regulators he have the ability, he have a a huge range of 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 sanction. But the three main one, it's he can do name and shame actually. So he can he can he can say that you are not following the rule. Uh, he can he can creating a sanction, even a very small one, but but make make this sanction public. He can he can of course uh, pronounce a, a fine, which can be relatively expensive. It can be million of dollar or, or dozen of million of dollar. If you are a very big actor, for instance, regarding the the market share of Binance. Uh, which is registered in uh, I don't know like three or four countries. Uh, when Binance will be regulated under Mika, the, the, the regulator of Binance uh, will have a, will 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 have a, the ability given the side of Binance to pronounce a huge uh, administrative fine if Binance, of course, uh, uh, can be held liable for something. It's, it's very similar to what happened with Google and, and Facebook, for instance, under the GDPR. And uh, of course, the last uh, shot—it's uh, the regulator can uh, can basically uh, uh, exclude you from the market if they uh, if they withdraw you your 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 license. It's not happen very often, but when it happens, it's uh, like the red button or the atomic bomb—I don't know. And um, so this is regarding the CASP. And of course, the regulator has also a lot of power uh, about the people who are not uh, licensed. But uh, we, are, we fall within the scope of its jurisdiction. So of course we are talking about all the foreign actors or all the offshore uh, players that uh, would like to target the European market uh, after their entry into application of Mega. Uh, just to add a very interesting liability, I would be very short. Uh, it's about um, in case an exchange, for example, we discussed this in previous episodes. But in case an exchange would like to list. 
um, on, on self-initiative, uh, a specific crypto asset, they would write uh, the white paper in this regard. And also for that white paper and the information there, uh, they will be liable, except from um, some kind of information is also um, sent to them by the offer. So that's just an, a very interesting example. On the, um, there's a, a huge variety of risks. So, you know, William tried to sort of create a, a framework for assessing this. What I would be just to add um, on cybersecurity. Uh, at the European level, we have the NICE directive, which treats cybersecurity from the perspective of essential services within an economy. One of the essential services is apart from water, transport, public transportation, it's also financial services. Depending on whether crypto at some point will be categorized as you know, financial services, uh, specific obligations on cybersecurity and you know, contingencies and uh, preparing a sort of a contingency plan and all sorts of other obligations stemming from the cybersecurity uh, uh, rules in Europe will be applicable. A second area which is uh, which will be covered highly probably it's not in Mika, but we need to take into account um, data breaches, personal data information breaches. That again will be a, a, a very important uh, uh, risk to be covered. And then on the um, on the specific uh, market abuse and insider dealing uh, prohibitions. What I'd like to add is the fact that <clears throat> Mika for, for CASPs, CASPs provides a sort of um, obligation. So whatever it's an obligation, if you don't comply with it, you'll, you'll have not only administrative uh, uh, fines, but also private enforcement coming, stemming from those. So for example, uh, you will be obliged to disclose insider information to the public with a couple of exceptions. You know. Uh, one of those is if the delay of disclosure will not mislead the public. But then again, it's very much left in the, you know, in, in a gray area, unless we will have some ESMA um, interpretative rules on, on, on this point. Um, another point of prohibition, and I think here it's, a, it's an interesting uh, situation, is the fact that uh, you don't have an you have a, a sort of a two a two uh, a flag approach. So prohibition of, of, of market manipulation. There are a couple of uh, market practices which are strictly prohibited, and those are sort of a red flags. But then also MICA comes uh, with, uh, and I think it's in Article 80, uh, the second paragraph, uh, the second article, uh, the second paragraph. Um, it's a sort of an orange flag where they, those might be prohibited depending on some fact-specific uh, circumstances. And then also in those orange flag situations, you might have all sorts of potential uh, liability risks because they are not 100% prohibited. They are, you know, in the middle. Um, thank you. That would be on my side. So I, I want to kind of circle on the, the cybersecurity aspect for a bit and, and, and maybe taking a step back on possibly one of the bigger burdens under MICA. So 
you, you know, let me frame the question a little differently. When when you look at the obligations of CASPs under MICA, where do you think the biggest lift lies for the CASP providers? Would it be the cybersecurity controls? Would it be the market manipulation controls that you'd have to be in place? So I would go in the same direction as you just started, Alexandro. It really depends whom you ask. If you ask some company which is coming from the crypto, uh, from the crypto industry and is very active in crypto and really understands cybersecurity, IT security, and is really mastering uh, every level two application and so on, I think for such a company complying with the IT security obligations, it is not a big deal and if they really understand how to do it. But it may be difficult for them to comply with uh, financial regulation because they never did something in the financial industry. And therefore, they will have problems to, to, to comply with financial regulation and also to maybe find the right uh, staff and the right personnel for, for doing the job because they're coming from the crypto environment. And the same or the opposite applies to if you look at the bank or if you look at the traditional financial services player who now starts to do crypto. If you would go to a bank um, and tell a bank, uh, look here, the, the Mika allows you to do any kind of crypto uh, custody or crypto uh, services because you're allowed to do so without any further license. I can bet with you that 99% of the traditional banks would say, I will not touch crypto because I don't have a clue on how to do crypto custody, IT security, uh, safekeeping of private keys. I don't have a clue what MPC is and what fireplugs and so on means. And therefore I cannot take care of that. And this is, I think, the, the, the biggest issue for the traditional players to get comfortable with the crypto uh, activities and everything related to IT security and they will also have difficulties to find the right people for the right job because uh, if you can uh, imagine or face like an uh, older gentleman from Deutsche Bank or from Commerzbank which is above 70 years and now has to run a bank uh, dealing with uh, security token trading and fire blocks and uh, algo trade and whatever uh, they will of course not understand how to do it but the managing director of such a bank is ultimately re responsible and liable for the activity of the institute. Therefore, this is very, very, very difficult for a traditional institute to suddenly uh, run crypto activities. Well, of course, I, I agree with Ali Reza. Um, I will start to stop to say that I agree with you because it's very repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> we, are so, we are so polite and nice in, the, in this podcast. Um, yeah, I, I think it's exactly depend of, of who you are, from who, who, um, whom you are. There is, I see maybe three situations. You are a very, uh, you are a big actor, like I mean, uh, uh, with well-funded, with uh, with already like a compliance services and a small team of legal people inside. I think the most difficult part of Mika will not be technical or legal. It will be like a, the cultural shift that it will that will that it will be required by the crypto industry. Uh, proposing a saving wallet or a yield product or a DeFi product without asking anything to your to your in-house lawyer and without being under the scope of a regulator will be will be the good old time. It will be terminated. You 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 will become a very regulated fintech, and it uh, I think the most the 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 most uh, the, the hardest part will be the cultural shift. If you are a new actor. Uh, we want to work with uh, traditional finance, uh, and you are like I don't know. You come from the traditional finance. It, Mika, it's absolutely a good news. 
because it's just like we we just creating something which look like very much to what happened in the traditional finance. So, and if you want to work with the traditional finance, Mika obligation is just the 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 minimum requirement actually for them to you know to have uh, to to have the same level of compliance. And lastly, if you are if you are a small startup, of course it will be costly. And it will require not only time and cost and, and, and money, which is something that a lot of startups don't have very much, especially right now, but it will only imply you to, to be able to have the, the, the human resources and the intellectual resources to deal with uh, this kind of process and to deal with the regulators. And unfortunately, some of the current market player uh, Right now, we are under the, under the radar, or we are very small and quite, uh, you know, like we, are, we like to do things very quick and dirty. Uh, but the new area that will be opened by Mika will be like, like not very favorable for them. So, yeah, this is my answer. I think what we also need to look into, uh, as you, William, already mentioned, is the small startups or the small entities that might not be able to finance the whole operation. And on the other side, looking into the investors, they will need to start looking into, okay, I need to uh, invest more for this startup because they will need to comply with all those rules and they will need to do it on the long term. Um, and I think that at the same time, it might be a little bit harder for those small entities to basically enter the market again to be a big player uh, versus the uh, maybe established banks or uh, established companies already that have this capacity um, and will have, um, as we all know, all this regulation will have a major shift um, in the whole ecosystem. And maybe not only when we discuss with Mika, but again, in, in Europe, I think the transfer funds regulation, AML, those will be very, very important uh, in the future too. So on that point, I want to return back to the 18-month period post, I guess, the implementation date. Um, so, and again, assuming that you already have a framework in place for CASPs as of the implementation date in in uh, 2024, then there is an 18-month period to affect compliance. You can jump in if I'm misstating it. If you're like a startup where you're trying to ease into the regulation, it's actually a fairly good time to, right? Because you're able to start and it, you, while everything's being figured out, you, you have this transitional period. What's intriguing is once you pass this transitional period and you get, as William would put it, that that layering of complexity, right? But what are the implications when, you know, past that 18-month period for a startup that is looking to enter into the space but really, you know, I guess needs training wheels? Is it like you better have, like in the U.S., like you better be completely ready when you're, when you're licensed or is there sort of a uh, a small firm compliance guide? Like so, in in the U.S., for example, like a smaller broker dealer, the SEC when they release certain rules, they will have this this um, they will do small firm requirements. So it gives small firms guidelines for how they comply, so they're not looking at the large firms and trying to comply with those requirements. So in that way, the the, the Finra actually. They, it actually facilitates small firm compliance because they're not looking at the enormity of the broker dealer space. But is there, and I know it's early stage and some of this is still formative, but what do you think the implications are for these smaller firms after this 18 month period when they've, you know, they no longer have the training wheels? William. Um, 
two things. Uh, first of all, uh, Mika, I think the, the, the level of expectation, the, the regulator will take, will, will have, will not have the same expectation uh, from a small firm, like from instant, a, a small startup uh, that it could have with a big, big crypto exchange or, or traditional actors. But still, the, 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 most of the requirements are the same. So it it will not. Uh, uh, I I know that there will be some like specific provision for like systemic actors or the very big one. But I mean between uh, I don't know five people team and a uh, five hundred people team, the the requirement like most of the obligation will be will be absolutely the same. And of course the regulator and we already saw that huh, because uh, when we are talking about the registration right now, which is uh, in place in most of the European country, most of the regulators they. They, they not ask exactly the same to a small team than to a large one. Uh, but I, I let, of course, my, my co-speaker uh, add, uh, add, uh, add things uh, on, on this part. And the, the second thing is what about the, the calendar of Mika, like the timeline of Mika. Of course, there is a huge, uh, almost a, a, a clock race right now for some people to ask to be registered. If you, if you can, for instance, if you're a foreign player in London or in the US, if you know that in two or three years you will be in Europe, Ask yourself if you don't need, if it's not clever to ask very quickly a registration to to benefit to to to, to get the benefit of of this 36 period to to get the maker license, because if you wake up in one year, it will be probably too late in 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 several at least EU country, including France, and you will be like from the beginning in the track to 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 get the the maker license, which can be a huge step. Part of my uh, commentary is la uh, relates to the fact that you're very much, you know, in the heart of Brussels and, you know, from the, from the way I see it from a policy perspective, uh, I mean, it's also clear that we know that this regulation is coming. Uh, we received a couple of years to prepare. And it's also true that exchanges, if we take exchanges and custodians, of course, there's a lot of innovation to be brought as the crypto and the, the blockchain space evolves. But are crypto exchanges the most innovative startups out there? I mean, I think they had a couple of years in order for them to, you know, to put things into place. Uh, from a policy perspective, what would be the benefit of protecting small exchanges in comparison with larger exchanges, which are super regulated very well, uh, let's say, coordinated from a IT cybersecurity perspective. Uh, that's a sort of a policy policy question. If I look on Central Eastern European markets, we always had a sort of very small exchanges, you know, across Romania, a couple of them, and then you have the you know the regional players and then the global players. So this is not a market which really invents itself as we speak. It's a market, at least on the crypto exchanges, that exists for some time now. Maybe with DeFi is going to be another story because DeFi is, you know, it's continuously boiling and we don't have rules. Uh, <clears throat> what I would ex suspect is that we will not have, like in the US, a sort of uh, lighter or milder regulations or conditions for small entities, but probably we will continue with the sort of a sandbox approach in 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 local juries in uh, in in national state members, uh, depending on the level of innovation that uh, 
uh, these projects will bring. So, you know, the UKs were among the first, but then more or less every uh, EU member state has a sort of a fintech sandbox um, where, you know, you could uh, be, let's say, you'll be tolerated in relation to some of the um, requirements uh, of MICA. I and I suspect that this will come in all sorts of, of new areas such as DeFi and, and other areas which are not purely 100% covered by MICA. Um, just one comment on the applicability, so the date when the MICA will be applicable. We probably heard and the listeners probably heard that there has been a delay uh, in the process, but from the day when MICA will be publicly um, um, published in the official journal um, in, in the European Union will have 18 months, as, uh, as you mentioned, but also 12 months period for just uh, uh, Title 3 and 4, which is basically the uh, uh, stablecoin part. So one of the areas I was going to pursue next um, was kind of running through how Mika could have prevented FTX, and, and we'll, we'll we'll get into just even just the simple responses because there's many levels of that. Um, but before I do, I I, I want to make sure that if there's like an area that you feel that we should be covering as it relates to CASPs, um, you know, please you know, we, we should cover that first. Just, you know, I, I don't want to miss something very substantial <laughs> and, and not have covered it through my questioning. So please feel free to kind of raise points now before we do the, the, the FTX run through, so to speak. Um, maybe just one remark. Uh, we already talked about it during the previous episode, but uh, anyway, is that like outside of uh, and, and at, at a higher level that's just the obligation because the CASP uh, regime by itself is something very interesting. We have said a lot about it, but it's still something expected. And most of the obligation and what we what, what, what Mika uh, ask and require from the CASP is very similar to what you have to the financial intermediaries. So everybody has understood that basically we are we are uh, uh, the the Europa is extending the the level of compliance from the financial uh, from the f traditional financial sectors to the crypto asset uh, to the European crypto asset industry at least um, it's 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 an extension uh, like 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 from from the bottom to the top you have more level and more layer of, of compliance like it's, it's quite comprehensive compliance. but you have also more and more service we are including uh, within the, the the functional scope of of Mika. For instance, advice on, on investment on, on crypto assets will be regulated as uh, the financial uh, instrument uh, advisory is regulated right now. And what is very interesting, I think, expect, especially right now when we are seeing a lot of uh, collapse from certain actors and, and a lot of repercussion um, in, in, I think in, in most of the European country, we see like broker or we see like, like service providers that are Heavily impacted by the collapse of Gemini, uh, BlockFi, uh, FTX, and so on, is that Mika will probably be the beginning of the the compliance, like like a kind of systemic regulation, um, because in in a very connected system, 
like the, the financial system is very connected. We, we, we saw that in, in, in 2008 and the crypto asset industry, even if it's uh, 1000 times smaller, is still very heavily connected. If you want to have trust, you need to have trust on, on your counterparty, but you also need to have trust in the counterparty of your counterparty and the counterparty of your counterparty of your counterparty. And only a very comprehensive and, and complete and comp uh, uh, regulation allow to, to reach this level of trust uh, within all the market. I'm not saying that media it's a, a miracle and will uh, and will uh, will solve every issue and every problem in the in the crypto asset in, in industry in the next five years, but I think it's it's the beginning and it's uh, it, it's the beginning at least of this uh, new chapter of the crypto of the crypto asset history. We are we are quietly leaving the I don't know the teenage of the of the crypto asset industry, and we are like. Uh, riding to something new I, I hope it will be it will be great and i know that they will be winner they will be loser but at least we found i i think it's a condition for like democratization and like to reach this new level of trust in the crypto asset industry sorry for this uh I, i'm i'm talking like a like a prophet or <laughs> but <laughs> no it's 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 excellent um I think that's very important. Uh, and we see this, we saw in the past, especially you in Germany and France, what effect uh, the, the regulation that you put in place had uh, on the specific uh, market. Uh, there were some that were, um, as mentioned, small companies and small exchanges, they were just shutting down. But there were new startups raising money just because the investors were confident that something could be built from the regulation that we have seen. Um, and I just wanted to mention the reverse solicitation question. I know we kind of uh, touched upon this in the previous episode, but in, uh, in, uh, in, in the process of negotiation of Mika, there was some discussion if uh, reverse solicitation should be prohibited under Mika. And then the decision, as we know, was that uh, it's not prohibited under MIFID, so uh, will not prohibit it under Mika either. Uh, but I think that that might be very interesting for the uh, crypto as a service providers that are not uh, operating in Europe. And that might uh, influence their decision when and how to um, ask for a license uh, in Europe in the future. Yes, definitely. I'm with you, uh, Marina, and we should uh, pay attention to the reverse solicitation because the MICA is going only to be applicable to the entire European economic area. But we have still so many players from the US who are not covered by the Mika and who will not be covered by the Mika, but who would still continue providing their services based on the reverse solicitation. And with this said, I, I would like to, to, to bridge it to the question what you brought up, Eric, to FTX. Because, I mean, we have three things we need to be very clear about FTX. What people take or get wrong. FTX uh, is not just FTX Bahamas. FTX is very complex. And FTX had many entities within a European economic area which were regulated. So there was the FTX Cyprus entity which had a MIFID license and which was already under the MIFID regime, which we understand when we uh, remember back to the beginning of our talks, the MIFID regime is very similar to the MICA regime. So, and to my understanding, uh, what we what we have, what is a bigger issue than a lack of regulation because the, there was no lack of regulation with the FTX Cyprus entity, the bigger thing we have, the bigger issue is that we have a lack of a globally harmonized regulation. So 
I think that Mika and Mifid is very good, but it doesn't give you anything if you have entities outside of the European Economic Area which are going to provide their services uh, to the people within the European Economic Area. Even though if it's based on reverse solicitation, which means that the citizen within the European Economic Area is freely by its own will asking for that service, uh, and then uh, something like with FTX happens. But coming back to your question, uh, I just wanted to put some or uh, two or three points uh, which are very, I think, important inside the Mika text, which show, I think, very directly, uh, like thinking of uh, FTX not being just the MIFID Institute, but being really like a CASP under Mika. Uh, I believe then in that case, Mika would have helped to stop what happened with FTX. There are, I, I'm only going to mention three articles which are very important. Article 59, which we already read once, is the obligation to act honestly, fairly and professionally in the best interest of clients and information to clients. So if you would have had this regulation applying to FTX, I think lots of things which went wrong wouldn't have went wrong. This is the first thing, which is very easy to understand. The second thing, which is very important, uh, it applies to anyone, not just to custodians, also to exchanges. Um, it's the it's the obligation under um, Article 63, I think. I'm just scrolling down. So Article 60, um, 63 is the safekeeping of clients' crypto assets and funds, which reads, crypto asset service provider shall uh, 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 that hold crypto assets belonging to clients or the means of access to such crypto assets shall make adequate arrangements to safeguard the ownership rights of clients, especially in the event of crypto asset service providers insolvency and to prevent the use of clients' crypto assets for their own account. And we have the same in Article 63, which is applying not just to crypto assets, but to fiat monies, uh, which says the same. So these three clauses, which I just mentioned, if we imagine if you would have had this ones in place and uh, given that FTX would fully comply with these rules, I honestly believe that we would not have had this dilemma like what we have now. But again, what I said in the beginning, uh, we shouldn't focus too much on Mika. We should focus on globally harmonized rules for crypto asset service providers. And I think this is the, the, the bigger picture and the bigger goal, which I hope is going to be happening hopefully in 2023 this year. Um, and uh, this is what the, the global environment on crypto needs. Right. Within any jurisdiction, you can have that framework, but to the extent that there is a, I guess, a parent entity or a larger enterprise that's offshore in a less regulated jurisdiction, then, um, you, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to see how, how that's protected against. Not just, and it's not just a, a MICA question to your point. It's, it's really, it's MIFID, it's, it's, you know, SEC, right? Rules and regulations, broker dealer, you know, CFTC, all these rules you know, govern the U.S., but, I mean, they don't necessarily extend to the parent. Yeah, but unfortunately with the FTX situation, it seems that the Japanese who really had their own set of rules and a way of segregating their and the sort of uh, limiting the influence of the mother company, even if you know, we are in a global trade where, you know, where you can establish freely companies, they were the best protected in this specific situation because Japan had for that you know, specific financial activities rules that uh, allowed them to 
um, create a separation between the entities. So Japanese customers were, at the end of the day, the ones who, you know, did not have the, the issues that uh, general creditors for FTX US and FTX uh, International have uh, nowadays. And, but, you know, on the FTX, we are discussing a lot about regulations, but I would also, you know, um, quote from the, the new CEO who's taking care of the company after the, you know, after uh, uh, and who's dealing with the, with the, with the whole um, deal. Uh, and he was saying that uh, it was a sort of a blatant failure of all possible internal controls. Uh, so it's not really crypto related. This could uh, uh, have come with any company which does not care about conflict of interest, uh, governance within a, a, an, a, an organized entity such as an incorporated company, be it in the US or in Europe. Uh, those though, there were a lot of you know sort of failures. There was not a uh, check and balance uh, across the organization and this doesn't you know honestly reflect on the FTX infrastructure or their security cyber security uh, plans and uh, other you know operational points it's, it was a matter of governance and governance relates to systems and people the most interesting thing is that uh, today in a in a one of the victims of FTX, which is a Gemini, if, if I if I understand well, have published the list of the 30 or, or the 50 biggest uh, uh, creditors of Gemini, so the 30 biggest uh, uh, counterparties that have lost uh, money with Gemini, and um, and uh, and most of this counterparty was itself services who provide uh, uh, services to end user. Uh, so and this is something Mika will probably also prevent or at least strengthen a lot it will it will oblige this little i say little compared to gemini fx huh? little broker in france in belgium in germany to have their own due deal on the on the on the big offshore controversy and it will raise like globally the level of, of regulation and the level of uh, of control within the uh, i mean between the, the the market player and this is something i i i i i, I, I this is something very interesting with FTX. It's, we see that FTX was not regulated. It was in the Bahamas, so of course it was not very, very well regulated. But the problem is like nobody cared at, at this time. Everybody was working with FTX without asking anything. It was a, like a simple commercial relationship. And this is something that is not possible when we are dealing with a fund of, of, of clients, of consumer. I think what will also happen is in a way uh, the enforcement will have uh, a better uh, regulation in a way to go um, and to um, to look into. And we do expect the national competent authorities to have more knowledge on these cases and also more manpower that will look specifically into crypto. Um, now that the whole process with FTX is, is in a way um, started, we know that um, there were feedbacks in terms of, oh, um, you know, the transactions that happened on-chain they're so easy to track and we know exactly what happened if it was on chain. We have all this information there. And if we know how to read it and how to use it, it will be even easier for us to determine what really happened. And I think that this is also something that 
we need to we need to promote and we need to have more people uh, in different um, organizations that are actually doing enforcement uh, to those um, events.